My name's Brad. If I didn't meet you yet, or if you're new here, welcome. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Now, I'm a morning person. If I set this microphone here, will you leave it alone? No. <laughs> I'm a morning person, which... <sighs> this guy. Yeah, I'm just going to turn it off. And keep it up here. Um, like I said before, I'm a morning person. Have I said that yet today? Uh, which means 4.45 comes along. I don't need an alarm clock. It just something triggers in me and I wake up. And when I wake up, I wake up. I'm ready to go. I'm talking faster than I normally do. I'm ready to get out of the house and do things. My wife, this is one of the first tensions in marriage, is not a morning person. We are the exact opposite. At 9.45, she wakes up. She's talking fast. She wants to chat. She wants to do things. This is just one of the, ten, the glories of our marriage is figuring that out. So me being a morning person, here's my routine. 4.45, I wake up. I have this addiction that I'm working on. The first thing I do is probably everything we all do. We all look at our phones and we see what we've missed in the six and a half hours of sleep, right? Six and a half, you probably get longer. I can't. And so we, we read that. And then I get out of bed. I get ready for the gym. I do some reading. I catch up on some things. Uh, and I maybe do some work. If you've gotten emails from me at 5.30 in the morning, you know why. This is what I usually do. 5.45, I go to the gym. I go to the gym from 6 to 7, and then I come home and make breakfast. It's a fun thing. I like to do it. Mornings are the best. For breakfast is one of the, the main reasons that we've discussed that before. But breakfast, it's quiet. This last week, it was like five degrees cooler than what it was at noontime. And so it was wonderful. Thursday morning, here's what happens. I'm getting, going to the gym. Usually, I'm kind of excited to go. Class starts at seven. I get to my, or six. I get to my car, 545-ish. I, I start driving there. And then I realize that it's still 80 degrees. And it's smoky. And, I'm, and it, how many of you looked at the, uh, the weather app on your phone and it said 85 and smoke? Uh, it, it was like, this is what it looks like to live in a smoker's lung. This is, this is what it's like. Uh, and so I'm, I'm driving to the gym and I realize my gym does not have air conditioning. It has really bad fans. Uh, it's, been a, it's, it's a box of wood with no ventilation at all except for the front door and the garage door that they open so you can leave. And so there, I'm thinking, I'm going to go lift weights, which I normally love. I'm going to go. They're going to make me run today. I've seen the workout in this heat and smoke. And about half mile from my house and a, mile, and a half mile to the gym, I lost all motivation. And I'm sitting at the stoplight that normally is green. I'm sitting at the stoplight wondering, I should just make a U-turn. Go home, go back to bed, watch Sports Center. Do something, just not go to the gym. But I went to the gym. I get to the gym. I'm in the parking lot. I still have the air conditioning cranked in my car. And I'm thinking, do I really want to get out? No one has seen me yet. I can just kind of drift away and, said, and say, ah, I just slept through it, whatever. And then my friend Bernie walks up, slaps my car, and says, let's go. He had the same look of I did, like, oh, I can't believe we're doing this. I lost my motivation. And so I went to the gym. I go through the workout, but I really wasn't there. Have you ever had this? You do something and you're not really into it. Yes, I lifted the amount of weight that I was supposed to lift. I didn't do, but I didn't try a new thing. 
Yes, I got my heart rate up for the prescribed amount of what doctors say to get your heart rate up so you don't die. All of that. I, I, I did the workout, and then I went home, but I didn't try. I kind of went through the motions. Have you ever had anything like this? And Maybe it's not the gym, but you get all gung-ho, and you're going to go, and then halfway through it or halfway into it, you're like, I hate this. I don't want to do this. What's the first thing that happens after you lose your motivations? You kind of just, the rest of it, right? Is a verb. You just kind of say, enough with it. I'm tired of this. I don't want to be a part of it, but I'm just going to go through with it anyways. I'm going to fake it. Malachi writes a book in, his, in the Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew and then backwards one, Malachi writes this prophecy to people who have lost their motivation. They were going so well. They were doing such a good job. And then all of a sudden they forgot something. And when they forgot something, they end up going through it and living a half-hearted life. Malachi looks around him and he looks at the people in his world and goes, same thing, you're living a half-baked life. You're living a half-hearted existence. You're not really worshiping God. You're simply just going through the motions of it all. Half-heartedness is what happens. We're in the fourth, one of whatever week this is of our summer short series. We spent the last five weeks in the Old Testament. We're going to spend the next few weeks in the New Testament. This, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, has the same prophecy as the others. You've lost it, that prophecy in the first, in Revelation. You've lost your love. You've lost your motivation. You've lost the reason why you're doing this. And the result that they're having is a half-lived life. Malachi teaches us this thing, that the key to experiencing the fullness of everything that Christ has for us because of his love is to live every aspect of our lives in view of it and in view of full surrender. Malachi was written a hundred years after the nation of Israel comes back to live in Israel. They've been in captivity for the last century they come back to Israel. We have the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, which talk about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And then Ezra talks about the rebuilding of the temple. Malachi was around the same time as they were. They had come back to Israel. They had rebuilt the temple. Spirits were high. They thought that they were going to be uh, God's instrument in bringing peace and justice to the entire world. There would be a unified Israel. There was two nations. Israel had split, and Israel they, they thought Israel would be unified again, and they would rule over all of the nations because God would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. But it hadn't happened yet. What they had found was a hundred years after living in captivity and being back in Jerusalem, they were just as corrupt as their ancestors were. They were just as unjust as their ancestors were. They had just as much problems as their ancestors, and they were living in frustration with it. They had forgotten their motivation, and they started living a half-lived life. So Malachi writes this prophecy, and remember, prophecy is just words on God's behalf. Prophecy still occurs today. Prophecy in Malachi is he comes to Israel, and he says, this is what's happening. 
And he goes on, and there's six arguments that Malachi talks about. Today we're going to convince the six to two. There's six arguments that Malachi does. And he does this in a question and answer type format. It's the Socratic method, if we know philosophy. But Socrates wasn't around yet, so Malachi was the cool one before Socrates was. It's the Malachian whatever method, not Socratic. So hey, Malachi did it first. But he does this by asking a question. And then he pretends to give the response that the people of Israel would normally give. And so the first place where they lived their half-lived life was in their worship. Uh, if you follow along, it'll be on the screen, or if you have your Bibles, Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. And God says, I am a father, and where is my honor? If I am your master, where's the respect, says the Lord Almighty? It is the priests who show contempt for my name. This, the first assertion that's made is the son honors the father. In Exodus 20, the law that they were supposed to live by, the law that Moses gave the people of Israel saying, this is how you will be known and seen to the rest of the world. This is how you'll be my priest. One of the laws is in Exodus 20, 12. It says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord has given you. My mom and dad used to say this to me when I wouldn't do my chores. Honor your father and your mother, or we'll take you out, was what they used to say. And then in the Talmud, the Talmud is a collection of, of rabbinic teachings about how to live life. It's a translation of how to apply this Mosaic law that we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The Talmud says this, uh, the master has purchased time from a servant. And if that time is purchased, then the servant must work honestly in return for his wages. Not to give the master his best would be dishonest. And so you have this fabric woven within the culture of that day where you honor your father and you honor your mother. And if you are an employee, if you are a servant, you've been given wages. Don't rip off your boss, basically. Don't steal from them. And so God's first assertion towards the people of Israel is, I've given you uh, everything that I should give you. I've paid your wages. I gave you this entire land, and now you're ripping me off. You're not living according to what, I had, at what we had agreed upon. This is how they responded. But you ask, how have we shown contempt to your name? The people of Israel were so off base that they didn't even know how they've done this. How have we ripped you off, Lord? How have we done this? How have we stolen from you? How have we not honored you? In verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer a blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you offer... Would you sacrifice lame or diseased animals? Is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Here was the law. The law says this in Leviticus. And any time we can go to Leviticus, we will, because it's one of those confusing books that doesn't make a lot of sense all by itself. But here is what they were supposed to do. Tell Aaron, who was one of the first priests, and his sons to treat with respect the sacred offerings of the Israelites consecrate to me so they will not profane my name. I am the Lord. 
Then in verse 20, in chapter 22, verse 19, you must present a male without defect from the cattle, sheep or goats, in order that they may be accepted on your behalf. Do not bring anything with defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. Then verse 31, keep my commands, follow them. I am the Lord. Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as, as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who made you. I made you holy and brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. When he says, I am the Lord, it's the word Yahweh, which is the name that God used to introduce himself to Moses. It's a name above all names. They won't even utter that name. So when he says, I am the Lord, it's kind of like the, this is who I am. Because who I am, this is what you're supposed to do. This is part of the covenant. I want sacrifices, but I don't want the diseased animals. I don't want three-legged cows coming up here. I don't want cows that are sick or sheep that are sick. I want perfection. I want your best. And I want the best because when you give me the best, I will bless you because the sacrifice will be received and your sins will be forgiven. And so God has this standard of the best. Now the accusation that was coming was that the people of Israel were not bringing the best. They were bringing half, half the sacrifice. Diseased animals. Animals with defects. They were living half-baked lives. They were bringing half-baked sacrifices. What I think was happening was that they were far too familiar with this religious thing to give it an honest try. They had tried for a long time. They had been around it for a very long time. It's something that they knew about. But their familiarity with the gospel, the familiarity with God's expectedness, what, the, what God expected, allowed them to show some contempt for it. Sacrifice was just something. It was just what they did on the weekend. It wasn't special to them anymore. Worship was just something that they went through. They began going through the motions. They lost their motivation for it. Familiarity bred contempt in their lifestyle. And they brought the wrong things. They did not love the Lord their God like they had supposed to. They lost the spark of their covenant. You and I have this, right? Familiarity with friends. The friendship first starts. We're all about this friend. We want to do everything. We think they're the greatest. And then you hang out all the time. Maybe it's a new job. You love it. You hang out with it. You want to be around it. And then six weeks into the friendship, six weeks into the job, you're like, oh, this is a lot of work. And you start going through the motions. I saw this with my car when, we, when I first, my first car, I bought my dad's truck from him. Every weekend, I would wash that car. I would wax the car. I'd probably wash the paint off of it. I loved it. Armor all. Is that still a thing on the tires? Polishing it. And then when it became time for an oil change at 2,998 miles, I was at Jiffy Lube. If I really cared about the car, I would have done it myself. I don't know how to change oil. Take that from my man points. But for just under 3,000 miles, I'd be in line at Jiffy Lube ready to get my oil changed. Two years later, the car's filthy. It's been dirty for a couple weeks now. <laughs> Six months, yeah. It's been dirty. I haven't cleaned out the inside. It's got sand and surf wax, everything inside of it. I've just kind of, eh, it's my car. Some guy door dinged it, and I went, nah, don't worry about it. It's an old truck old it's been six months since I've you know two years since I've owned it 
what happened? The familiarity of my car, I lost the love of my car. I lost the honor of driving my dad's old truck. I look back on it and go, man, I still wish I had that truck. I don't know where I would park it up here, but I still wish I had it. My oil change went from 2,998 miles to finding an article that said, you could probably go four. And then the guy said, why don't you switch to synthetic? You can go five. I was like, sweet, 6,000 miles. Let's do this. That's a lot longer. The people of Israel, one thing that was held special to them was the fact that they were God's treasured possession was the fact that they had the law. They were called God's priests. They were set apart, and they held that precious for some time. And then they lost that motivation. And the familiarity meant that they started bringing less than what God expected to them. When you worship, when you pray, are you going through the motions? Or are you honestly seeking God with all of your heart? Are you doing the half-hearted worship like the people of Israel do? Or are you bringing your entire life to the altar and saying, this is my best. I have my best here. Take. I am the sacrifice. Paul says there's, there's something that changes. We don't offer sacrifices of lambs and goats and cows and grain anymore. Paul says in view of everything that God has done for us, we offer our lives as a sacrifice. And the same uh, requirement as the sacrifice for them is the same requirement for us. Paul says, holy and acceptable to our God. Which means half-hearted sacrifice is not a sacrifice. Half-hearted worship is not worship. Half-hearted devotion is no devotion at all. If you are married, what if you were only half-married? It doesn't sound like marriage sounds just like a relationship. When we worship, we bring our whole selves, every part of us, to worship. When we follow God, it's every last bit of you. This is what Malachi says. This is one of the first disputes that he brings to them. It's our motivation. And when we lose that motivation of God's love and God's acceptance and what we mean to him, we lose the picture and we lose the picture of our goal and it becomes so easy to go mindlessly through the motions. But it didn't stop at their worship. If you continue reading in Malachi, your worship, how you worship, affects every last bit of you. You become what you worship, as one author has said. And for them, they, they gave a half-hearted effort in their worship and then that dictated that the next thing they do in their relationships, they gave half-hearted efforts in their relationships. God says this in, 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 verse, in chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Malachi is asking these rhetorical questions. And then the answer is this. The answer should be yes for them. They all agreed that God created them. They all agreed that they were the father, that he was the father of the, of the nation of Israel through Abraham. And so the answer is yes. And the question comes back. Then why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? In their view, they were all one part of one big family. And for them, it was completely inappropriate for them to treat somebody else in your nation with any kind of contempt to offer injustice to anybody 
in their nation was to treat your brother or sister wrongly. So if you're all part of the family, why then do you treat each other unjustly? This too goes back to Leviticus in chapter 19, verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. By dealing this way with one another, they were forgetting God's covenant. They were forgetting how they were supposed to treat one another. They're forgetting that we're all part of this family. And what they were doing, as you read on, is that men who were married, they were married to the wife of their youth. They would get married very young. They would have children with their wives. And then, as they grew older, the men would divorce and go marry another younger woman. This is what was... happens today. It was happening years ago. It's something that's always taken place. This was very hard on the women because then women had a hard time surviving on their own. Marriage in the Bible, when, it, when it's talked about, is talked about as a, as a garment of protection that is over the couple. When men get married to women, when, married, when, they, when they would be married, they would offer protection over the woman. In that society, women had no rights. They couldn't go get a job. They couldn't have money. And so marriage was offered as a way to protect the women from the injustice of society. Now, they've been married for years. They had children, which was an identifying uh, a, a way for women back then to have some kind of status. They had their children And then they would divorce them because they found someone younger, leaving the woman on their own and at risk. And so Malachi says this to them, you profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another. And then in, in verse 11, it says, this is detestable. Something detestable has been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying women and worshiping a foreign god. So they weren't just divorcing and marrying somebody else. They were divorcing and then marrying a woman who didn't worship God. Someone who brought in idols into the relationship. This verse in this section has been twisted to say that we can't marry interracially. That's not what it's saying. The, the command that was given was don't marry somebody who doesn't worship your same God. Back then in these days, nations worshipped certain gods. And so by marrying interracially was marrying someone who worshipped a different God. In our day, it doesn't really fit. What does fit is marrying somebody who worships God. The same beliefs that you do. Paul talks about this in Corinthians when he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteous and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? This is what happened is they would bring in these wives that worshipped idols, and then pretty soon the husband goes, Yeah, it's just a little Baal worship. It's something that she's into. I can deal with it. And then it grew further and further into the family. And now they're worshiping Yahweh, the true God, next to a false God. And then pretty soon the false God is on the top and Yahweh just kind of drifts to the side. This is what was happening. And so God says, you've been unfaithful to your covenant. You're now worshiping other gods. It's talking about marriages here. It's talking about husbands and wives. Honor your marriage. Honor your commitment. 
but it was also a picture that Israel had cheated on God and started breaking the covenant with God and worshiping other idols. And so they were supposed to worship one true God, and now they were worshiping idols, idolatry. They had broken the covenant of their marriage, and they had broken the covenant with God. And they started treating each other unjustly. They started not caring for each other. Because you become what you worship. Baal was not a very just God. Asherah was not a very just God. They didn't care about justice as much as God did. He says this in verse 16. A man who hates and divorces his wife says to the Lord, the God of Israel, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one they should protect. So they would be acting unjustly to their wives. The people had gone half-hearted in the way they worshipped. They had gone half-hearted in the way they cared about the next person, even the person closest to them. It shows us a principle that Charles Dickens said, but it's found here first. Justice begins at home. How you treat the person next to you, the person under your roof, is the very foundation where justice begins. For the people of Israel, justice began at home. How can they be just to somebody else when they can't even treat their wife or their husband, their partner, with the respect that's due to them? Justice begins at home. We see a lot of people who are all about justice, justice this, justice that. And what's sad is when you scratch the surface on their justice, what ends up showing is that underneath this veneer of everything is good is this ugly thing that they are actually not living the just life. You see pastors who on the outside are doing great, but on the inside are embezzling or having multiple affairs. Justice, justice in the back corner of the room, not justice. Or you're so justice, you want justice, you want the sex trade ended, you want all of this, you, you stand up, you go on the marches, then you get home and you start clicking pornography. Justice on the outside, not justice on the inside. You want justice, but the ones closest to your heart are receiving none. Justice begins at home. You want justice, but when you scratch the surface of your lives, you end up that you're finding that you're not very just. And Malachi is exposing this here. We want justice, but we're not willing to live it. It's lip service to God. And don't hear me wrong. God is the God of justice. He wants justice for all. He is the God who invented justice. He is a just and loving God. But he wants the people in his life or the people who are following him to actually practice justice when they're at home and no one's looking. Justice begins where we live. God says, because of your half-hearted worship and because of your half-hearted way of serving justice, I'm very displeased with what's happening here. And they don't even see it. This is what, then they, it continues. They've lost their motivation for justice. And then verse 217, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And they say, how have we wearied him? By asking, you ask by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with him. And then you say, where is the God of justice? So they see all the evil that's going on and they say simply this, that's eh, okay, 
It's their thing. It's okay. It's good. They saw evil happening all around them. They knew what was right and what was wrong, and they were okay to say, that's all right. We'll let him skate this time. And they called the ones who were divorcing their wives and bringing in the new, younger, foreign God, worshiping God, and they saw them and went, that's good. Maybe they had reason for divorce. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe there was infidelity. I don't really want to go ask. I'm just going to call it good, and they ignored it. We do the same thing. We ignore justice because we don't want to confront. We see people taking what God has called good and saying, uh, that's archaic. The law doesn't really matter to us today. The Bible's just kind of old-fashioned, whatever. And we call something that God has called evil good. They'd lost their motivation to live according to God's laws. They'd lost their motivation and they started calling the unjust just. God writes to them through Malachi that this kind of thing has to stop. And he says, I want you to return to me. I want you to come back. But in order to return, in order to return and come back, you have to remember. Remember and return. Malachi begins like this in verse 1. Uh, or verse 2 of, of Malachi chapter 1. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. It starts with, I have loved you. This is the first thing that God says, other than Malachi, a prophet, blah, blah, blah. It says, I've loved you. This is where we start. This is the first complaint. The second thing that it says, but the people of Israel say, how have you loved us? We've loved you. I've loved you, God, God says. I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you from slavery. I brought you back from captivity in Babylon. I reestablished you. I've loved you so much. I've called you from other nations. I've loved you. And the people of Israel forgot. How have you loved us? They don't know or they don't even care to remember that this is the God who loved them first. When you forget that God loves you, the first thing that goes is wholehearted devotion to him. The people in here in Malachi are the same as us. When we lose our motivation, when we lose the primary focus of our lives, that you are loved and accepted by your God, you start to live half-heartedly. People of Israel, you are loved. And they say, and Malachi says, remember where you came from. And once you remember that from the very get-go you are loved, you'll be able to return. Remember and return. Remember the story of the prodigal son? The, this, this boy goes to his dad and says, I want my whole inheritance, which probably was a lot of money. He takes the money, he leaves, and then a couple weeks later, we don't know how long, he finds himself in a pigsty uh, eating the pig slop, which was a double offense because pigs were unclean, and he's eating their same food. He's broke. He's spent all of his inheritance. He has nothing. What's the first thing he does when he's sitting at rock bottom? He remembers the love of the Father. And then when he remembers the love of the Father, he gets up, 
He dusts himself off and he starts that long road back home. He remembers how good he had it when he lived with his dad. He remembered how much his father loved him and everything that his father gave to him. And he goes home. And where do we see his father in the story? Not sitting there mad and angry that, ah, my son took off. He's not stewing in the back, changing channels. He's at the corner edge of the property, almost on his toes, looking for his son. Then he sees his son. He pulls up his robe so he can run more. Culturally, men of that age and that that stature did not show their ankles. So he pulls up his, his robe, shows his knees. That's scandalous. And then he runs. Men of that stature did not run. In fact, the slower you moved, the more prestigious you were. So this man shows his ankles, picks up his robe, ties it in front of him, and runs as fast as he can to see his son who had been gone. The son remembered and returned. And later in the story, the son is also called a treasured possession. Look in uh, in, in Malachi 3, verse 17. He says, when you remember... When you come back, when you remember what I said in the very first chapter, I have loved you. When you remember, I will on that day, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as the Father has compassion and spares the Son who serves them. In Exodus 19, the children of Israel were called slaves, were called worthless, were called just property. God brings them out to Sinai and says, you will be my treasured possession. Here, they've forgotten how much God loves them. And God says, when you remember the love I have for you, you will be my treasured possession once again. When we remember how much God loves us, it makes our worship, our prayer, how we interact with one another so much easier to do because it's not just out of mindless activity it's actually in response to something we have received to something that we give the love becomes the foundation of how we live our lives we look at these minor prophetic books and next week we're going to go into some of paul's smaller letters but we look at these minor prophetic books and we think man god is really ticked off isn't he He's an angry God. He's just into smiting. He's just into t- to, to destroying and allowing people to be invaded and taking off. And, but when you scratch the surface more and you begin to see the motivations of all of these, you start to see God not as an angry God, but rather as a wounded lover. Of a God who loves his people so much that he's trying his best to get them to remember his love and everything that he's done for them in order that they may return. He's trying to win them back. He had them, they forgot. They forgot their vows. They started breaking the covenant. They were unfaithful to their God, but God was always faithful to them. And he did so much to win them back. God, as a wounded lover, trying to get you to come home, not as a sinner, not as someone who's done so much wrong, but because he loves you so much, 
that eventually he gave his only son to show you how much he loved you. The question that Malachi raises for me might raise the same for you, is what if we pursued God as much as he pursues us? He loved us so much that he gave his son. He came after us. He shows us that we are his treasured possession. Ephesians talk about you are God's workmanship. You are his masterpiece created to do good things. He still thinks very highly of you. And what if we pursued him the same way that he pursues us? Today, as Communion Sunday, we take communion as remembering just how much and just how far God had done and, and went to get us back. He went to the cross and showed us what love looked like. And he rose again to defeat the power of death and sin. And so today we remember that. Before you come to take communion, and we, we like to go on the outsides and go like this, before you come to take communion, I want you to ponder that question. What would it look like if you pursued God with the same amount and same fervor that he pursues you? Another question, what happened to your motivation? Did it leave a half mile away from your house, half mile towards your gym? Where'd your motivation go? What happened? Where you lost your first love? Where you lost sight of how much God has done for you? And what would it look like for you to return? Pray with me, and as I pray, would the communion service come forward. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have loved us first. And God, may we respond to your love. May we respond to your grace. May we begin to see you not as an angry judge out to get us, but as a loving father, a wounded lover trying to get us home, trying to bring us back. And may we return to you. May we give you our whole selves, our whole hearts. In your name we pray.